Open your Bibles along with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. A couple announcements. Uh, this Thursday at Nikki Thomas's house, there's going to be the cookie exchange. And so any of you ladies who would like to go, there's a sign-up sheet out there in the foyer. Just put your name down. And uh, it's a great time, and I love chocolate chip cookies and also those peanut butter ones with the Hershey Kisses. Not putting any pressure on anyone what they're going to bake, but anyway, um, sign up for the cookie exchange if you'd like to go to that. And uh, also, this Wednesday there's going to be a youth Christmas party here at the church, so the adults will be meeting up here for Bible study. And just to let you know about that, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and how thankful we are for your word and how thankful we are for the nuggets of truth and wisdom that we can pull out of your word, that it might minister to us and encourage us in all your ways. And Father, we look at portions like Leviticus and oftentimes we think, well, what's in there? But it's your word, Lord, and it's to us. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would make known the wisdom in this portion of Scripture that you would use me as your humble servant in order to deliver your word to these, your precious people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And you know, one of the things that we talked about last week, and we'll be getting into it again this week as well, that we have to remember, is that the Lord, his discipline is out of love. The Lord disciplines those he loves. In fact, in, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12, it says this, For whom the Lord loves... Listen, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. doesn't say the son in whom he can't stand. It's the son in whom he delights that he disciplines. Because if you really consider what the very purpose of discipline is, is to train up a child in such a way that they will be someone who is useful not only to society, loved in the family, but also to be able to express God's love to the world. An undisciplined person has a difficult time expressing God's love because everything else they do is so distracting. And also we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 and verse 11, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves... He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the, for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I don't think there's anyone who's, who would say, I love discipline. I love being chastened. None of us do. But if we learn the lesson that that chastening and discipline is bringing us, it really brings out a harvest of righteousness in our lives. It enables us to behave in such a way that brings glory to God. And for this reason, when we read portions like this, because this portion, is, it seems very negative, like, oh, all these horrible things are going to happen if you don't obey, and, and this and that. But when we read portions like this, we have to understand it is God's desire always to bring us back into right relationship with him. You see, we have to understand that God is love, But we also have to understand that God is also truth. And so he cannot have a people that are outwardly expressing their love for him, but don't obey him. If you love me, you will obey my commands. 
And his commands are not burdensome, Scripture tells us, but it's actually for our good. It's for our benefit. And we have to always keep that in mind. And um, one of the things I find interesting, and Pastor Frank Jr. has brought this out you know, a couple times as well, is in this portion we're going to be reading, uh, God is talking about discipline that he's going to bring on the children of Israel because for 490 years they were in the land and never gave the land the seven-year Sabbath rest. Therefore, he was taking them out of the land into captivity to Babylon for 70 years, which also Jeremiah the prophet prophesied about. But this is all written before they even went into the land. God is talking to Moses, we'll find out, on top of Mount Sinai. And Moses never went into the land, remember? But anyway, so this is all happening... All this that the Lord is laying out, he's telling them, you're going to go into the land, you're going to be there 490 years. Think about it. We haven't been here 300 years. You're going to be there 490 years, and then you're going to completely turn against me, and I'm going to have to discipline you. And it shows, at least it should show to us, the fact that the Lord, he knows the end from the very beginning, Scripture tells us. And so... God knows what the end result is, and we might not. So therefore, we have to be willing to accept whatever correction and discipline he's giving us, because in the end, it's, it's going to be for our benefit. And um, once again, we'll notice that the first person singular pronoun, I or me, is used in this portion 35 times. Why? Because the Lord is proclaiming the fact, I am God. And also, he's proclaiming the fact with I and me, it's all capital M, you know, it's, it's the tetragrammaton, it's, it's God, it's speaking. And what he's saying is, I have a relationship with you, and it's me that is doing this, you know, whatever discipline it might be, whatever good is going on, whatever profit is coming into the land, it's me. Because he wants to, us to understand he is Lord. And think about it. Who else can know 490 years in advance exactly what's going to happen? Exactly. Except for the one who created time. Time has no meaning to God. It does to us. But it has no meaning to God. He lives outside of time. Scripture tells us he inhabits eternity. Eternity is not a lot of time. Eternity is where there's no existence of time. It's amazing, isn't it? Now... It's a long portion, Leviticus 26, and I'm picking up in verse 21. Leviticus 26, picking up in verse 21. Then, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. That's pretty ominous uh, you know, discipline. Verse 23. And if these things are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, or I'm sorry, if by these things you are not reformed by me, it's all the Lord doing it, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And take notice 
of the number of times he says seven times. Seven is always perfection or completion. So it's complete discipline or complete encouragement for your sins. And I, I will also bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant when you are gathered together within your cities. I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be devoured in, uh, and de- delivered into the hand of your enemies. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women uh, shall bake your bread in one oven. And they sh- In other words, there's so little flour, they only need one oven to bake their bread. And they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. There won't be enough. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chasten you seven times. Once again, seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses onto the lifeless form of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. You have to understand the kind of religion that they had fallen into was uh, involved sacrificial worship of children. It was, it was sickening. That's why the Lord's hand was so strong. Verse 30, 31. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas, the offerings that they would, should be making to him. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies uh, desolate and you are in your enemy's hand. And the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time that it did not rest on, the, on your Sabbath when you dwell in it. And so remember, they were in the land 490 years. Every seven years, they were supposed to give the land a Sabbath rest. So that's seven, um, 70 Sabbaths that they owed the land, and that's exactly how long they were taken into Babylonian captivity. It's amazing. How can anyone read the Bible and see prophecies so far in advance and not understand this is the word of God, not the word of man? Verse 36. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into your hearts in the, land of, in the land of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. Then, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. And they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword. When no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before, they shall have no power to stand before their enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their fathers' iniquities, in which, uh, in which are with them. They shall waste away. But, and I love this, then you have a conclusion. It says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they have been unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, 
if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. Notice, it talks about confessing and accepting guilt. That's so important because so often we just like to have you know, general confessions, but we have to be willing to say, it's me, Lord, it's me. It's, it's not the nation, it's, it's me, Lord. Verse 42, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will, rem- I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt. Once again, have to accept our guilt. Because... They dis, because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them uh, to utterly destroy them and, br- and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. And because you have such exact detail of future history, history that would take place 490 years ago, the skeptics of the Bible say, well, that was written afterwards. That couldn't have been written before. But the reality is we have so much proof archaeologically and in every otherwise and as far as Israel's history. This was written exactly when the Bible said it was written. When Moses was still alive on Mount Sinai with God and he lays out this kind of detail of what would happen because of disobedience. But the thing we have to remember when we read this portion of Scripture, God never lets go because in the end, the people repent. They accept their guilt. They confess. And God remembers his covenant with the people and he brings them back into the land. It's absolutely amazing. You know, we like to think of God as, uh, well, actually never getting angry. Just kind of accepting uh, all of our misconduct is just, well, those are just little misdemeanors that we have to commit. You know, that we commit. We, we want God to act like a father of a very spoiled child. And we're the very spoiled child. But God doesn't act that way because a person who spoils their child is setting their child up for a miserable life. And God doesn't want to set us up for misery. And so that's why Scripture is so clear about him disciplining those he loves because by his discipline, by his chastening, we're brought back into right relationship with him. And what a beautiful thing it is to know that you belong to Almighty God Because here's what you have to remember. Everything this world has to offer is for this life. It's for this life. And I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie Dead Poet Society. And in one scene, they're looking at all these pictures on the wall of different classes that had graduated from this school. And they were talking about the fact that this class over here, none of them exist anymore. None of them are alive. None of them exist anymore. They're, they're gone. I'm putting it in my own words. And that's the thing we have to understand. Everything this world has to offer is a vapor. You can't grab a hold of it. It's just going to be gone. Because one day, 
we're going to die barring the rapture. And so we have to realize that God gives us these strong disciplines and encouragements to bring us back into right relationship with him because he is the only reality. Life is a vapor. Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then vanishes, James tells us. But God is reality. God is substance. God is truth. And that's why Scripture can say for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For for me to live is Christ, but to die is actually gain. It's better. And brothers and sisters, you need to always remember that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not for one second, not for one nanosecond, lose conscious awareness of your relationship with him. Never, never. Your self-identity is secure in God. And when you stand before God, it's not going to be nirvana and you're just some kind of part of the vapor force and this and that. When you stand before God, you're going to be you. It's amazing. I mean, when I stand before God, he's not going to say, oh, you're one of those people from the USA in the 20th century. He's going to say, welcome home, Frank. And I'm going to say, praise God. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture. I, I usually don't like pictures that depict Jesus because I'm just old-fashioned and the Bible talks about not making any images. You know, Because there's no way we can... The only image we have of Jesus Christ isn't an actual picture. It's a word image that we find in the book of Revelation, and it's mind-blowing. But the one picture I like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, and... It's Jesus, like, standing on a cloud, and he's got his arms wrapped around this guy, and the guy's got his head in his, in his breast, and Jesus is hugging him, and the title of the painting is Welcome Home. We're going home one day, either in death or the rapture. And this world is not our home. This life is not our home. You know what I'm saying? It really isn't. In uh, Psalm 711, it says, sounds like a good name for a store, doesn't it? Psalm 711. Uh, God is a just judge. Now listen to this. And God is angry with the wicked every day. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't wink at wickedness. He's angry every day. The answer of why God is so angry with sin every day is obvious. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world for the very purpose of suffering an agonizing, horrible death that our sins might be forgiven. And God raised him from the dead that he might be our eternal and continual sacrifice, bringing him to heaven, assuring us eternal life to be with God forevermore. But his son he gave as a sacrifice, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so anyone who rejects Jesus Christ or is disobedient to his word. This is his word. Jesus is the word of God. He was with God from the beginning. And you know that whole portion in the Gospel of John. So if we are disobeying his word, we are actually snubbing our nose at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're trampling his blood, as Hebrews tells us, underfoot. No wonder God's angry with sin. Think if your son gave his life to save someone else's, 
then that person just went carelessly and, and did their, lived their life horribly and did all kinds of horrible things. You'd be angry about it. That's why God is angry with sin every day. And also take note that each time they continued to disobey, their affliction increased seven times. Why did their affliction increase seven times? Because of God's love. You might be thinking, why is that love? Because God wants his children to do what's right, that they might be in relationship with him. He's wishing for none to perish. I don't know about you. I'd rather be harshly disciplined than to not enter into the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you? Remember, we have to understand this. Grace is never an excuse or reason for sin. Listen, grace is never an excuse or reason for sin. It is rather the means by which we can overcome sin. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people like to um, throw out their pre-grace, I, I guess I'd call it. Well, I can go and do this, and I can go and do that, because God's going to forgive me. God's grace, 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 and I can go and do whatever I want. That's not the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace is to have recovery from sin. God, forgive me for sinning. And God's grace and mercy comes pouring down on you and fills your heart and soul that you can put your head back up be in relationship with him, and walk in obedience. That's what the purpose of grace is. Now, the final judgment of God is always on a rebellious, unrepentant people, on an unrepentant world. Not just a single nation, but an unrepentant world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, It's the coming of the lawless one. It's talking about when the coming of the Antichrist is, is here. The, uh, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to do all kinds of amazing things. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusions that they should believe the lie. Sometimes we say, how can people believe that? Because they've rejected the truth. They've rejected the truth whole, wholeheartedly. And so now they've been turned over to strong delusions where they will believe all these lies that are coming around. We have to realize that from the garden, from the very beginning, all God ever wanted was children that would love him and love is always expressed through obedience. Do you understand that? You know, if you tell someone, I love you, but I don't care what you think about anything. I'm going to do whatever I want. That person would probably say, I, I doubt if you love me. Well, how much more is that true with God? When everything he lays out for us is perfect and righteous. And then we say, I love you, Lord, but I'm just going to kind of live my life any way I want. They go together. And so if we really love the Lord, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That is what this portion is trying to encourage us to do. Because we have to understand that from the beginning, God just wanted to be loved when he created man in the garden. And ever since then, God has provided ways of redemption that man might come back into this loving relationship with him. What love, what amazing love that is. 
we have to understand that our nation was not founded as a Christian nation, but our nation was founded on Christian principles. Do you understand the difference? Our nation was not founded, you know, to be just a safe haven for Christians. And there are all kinds of groups that were here and so forth. But it was founded on Christian principles. This nation, all of our laws are based on Christian principles. Our Constitution is based on Christian principles. But the thing is, it's been lost. Anyone who looks at our world and society today can't help but realize all this has been lost. Let me just share some things I wrote down. The respect men used to give to women would now be considered sexist. How amazing is that? Try opening a door for some women. I mean, I've had some... Anyway, it's amazing. If you get into an elevator and take off your hat, people would think you're weird, you know. But now the respect that men used to show for women, and it wasn't like, oh, you poor little pitiful women. Men had a respect for women. They're mothers. They're hard workers. You know what I'm saying? It's been gone. And women who desire to be full-time homemakers are considered weak, not fulfilling their potential. Alcohol, even drunkenness, is considered a safe alternative to drugs. Prescription narcotics are handed out like lollipops. Fornication is considered a normal part of any relationship. Divorce, even among Christians, is considered a valid way to resolve marital issues. One dares not speak against homosexuality, atheism, or the sacred unscientific theory of evolution. Violent crime has now become a way of life. There's always a war someplace, somewhere. Genocide, sex trafficking, domestic violence are now the condition of our society. And if you are rich and well-connected, none of these relate to you. You can do what you want. Isn't that sad? But it's true. That's why in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 25, it says, Woe to those who call evil good. This is the time in history we're living, brothers and sisters. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, So their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. Understand that even after 70 years in Babylonian captivity, the people never came back into the land with all the strength and power that they first had when they came into the land of Cana. They never had the full blessing of God because they were never in full obedience. You know, shortly, we know that um, before they even went into captivity, there was a split between the north and the south. In fact, the north was taken into captivity many years before the, the the southern kingdom was. The southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin. But after Babylonian captivity, if you study scripture, you find that all 12 tribes were released to come back into the land, but they never 
loved the Lord and followed him according to his word as he commanded them. And so we have to realize that they're in, they were in the land, but because of their disobedience to God, the Romans came in, sacked the Jerusalem, burnt down the temple, and scattered them in the world for 2,000 years, which is one of the greatest miracles anyone could ever observe, and so many people reject it. You have the Jews scattered in the whole world for 2,000 years. And even in all that, they never lost their identity as Jews, they never lost their ancient language, and they never lost their faith. And a large part of that was due to anti-Semitism. No one wanted to be involved with the Jew, and it kept them as a separate, identifiable people. And then after 2,000 years, you had the Belfort Decree that was passed in 1917 when they were able to come in and purchase land. But then you had... You know, after World War II, they were allowed to come in and, and possess the land. And then on May 14, 1948, they had their war. The entire Arab world came against them. Miraculously, they defeated the Arabs that came against them, and they were able to establish themselves as a nation. And if that wasn't enough, just a, year, a little over a year ago, Jerusalem was recognized as Israel's capital. And that's major if you follow prophecy. Because we have to understand that the time of the Gentiles is coming to completion. In fact, um, in Romans chapter 11, if you take notes, verses 25 and 26, I do not want you to be ignorant of, the, of, of uh, this mystery, brothers, so that you shall not be uh, conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. During the tribulation time, you have two-thirds of the Jews are put to death. The one-third that remain, it tells us they all accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and the fulfillment of this prophecy that all of Israel shall be saved. And so we have to understand, to the very end, God is always given, giving opportunity, not only to the Jews, but all people of the world to be saved. You think about it, that even after the rapture, even after God takes his church out of the world. Now, one of the things you have to realize is that the actual uh, tribulation period from the sense of Antichrist coming into power doesn't happen until halfway into the tribulation. That's when he comes into power. And that's when he forces everyone chapter 14 of Revelation, that's when he forces everyone, small and great, to take a mark on their hand or their forehead. And anyone who did not take the mark uh, on their hand or their forehead was to be put to death. And we believe from what we see in Scripture by beheading. But even in the midst, in the very middle of God's wrath being poured out on the world, his love is also expressed. If you want to turn, this is what we're closing with, to Revelation chapter 14. That's the last book. Revelation chapter 14. Go to verse 6. I mean, this might seem like, like why, why is that in there? It's an expression of God's love on the people of earth, on this world. Revelation 14, start with verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having... What did he have? 
the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. I mean, we have people preaching the gospel all over the earth now. But can you imagine an angel flying in midair and preaching the everlasting gospel? And you're going to have a lot of people, that'll, many people, that will just reject it. But there will be those that don't, that get saved. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she had made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And you know, there is political Babylon, but there's also religious Babylon. And religious Babylon, the fake religion has fallen. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, I mean, you talk about giving, giving you know, explicit instruction. And he says, anyone who worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he shall himself also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into his cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So even halfway through the tribulation, an angel is flying through midair, proclaiming the everlasting gospel, you know, that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ as a free gift. And another angel is proclaiming the fact that you think things have been bad these first three and a half years? They're really going to get bad now. And that this Antichrist is going to force everyone to take a mark, either in their hand or their forehead. But don't do it. Because they are going to be falling into the lake of fire. The lake of fire comes after hell, you understand. Hell is where the unrighteous dead go right now. And that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is going to be the lake of fire. And how awful is that? And that's why the bottom line of everything is the bottom line that Solomon came to. The wisest and wealthiest man that ever lived indulged himself in every kind of, of sensual pleasure. And yet, at the end of his life, this is his conclusion. And it's Ezekiel twelve thirteen. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Think about it. Someone who had all the opulence that he did, all the wisdom he did. And <clears throat> he's saying the bottom line is fearing and loving God. That's the bottom line. And that's the bottom line for us, to fear and love our Lord. Now, when we talk about fearing the Lord, we're not talking about being afraid of him, like, oh, here comes God. The fear that's being talked about there is respect. It's a reverence. He is God. He holds the power of life and death. And so we fear him. But our fear is based on the decision that we make. If we say, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice on my behalf. God, thank you for sending your son into the world. I repent of my sin. Come and fill me with your Holy Spirit and use me. Then all that fear is taken away. Now all we have is this reverent love for God. But for those 
who know the truth, and everyone knows the truth in their heart, and they reject it, there really is a fear for the Lord. There's, there's this dread within. You know, I think all of us, even as believers, we fear the process of death. You know what I'm saying? Oh, how am I going to die? And what's it going to feel like? You know, but <clears throat> we don't fear death itself because we know we're going to be with the Lord. But unbelievers fear death. Not just the process, they fear death. Because I believe that somewhere inside of them has been placed an understanding of who God is and what it means to reject God. And I think that's why they fear death so much. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that as believers, we don't have to fear death. Even though the process might not be pleasant for us to think about, we have absolute all assurance of being with you at the point that the last breath of this life is taken. And I pray, Father, that you would bring this peace and joy to everyone here. What joy it is, what peace it is to know that we have you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. And, of course, we're sharing our communion this morning. And communion is such a special time for we as believers because it is... As Pastor Frank Jr. says, it's sharing a meal with Christ. Christ shared this meal with his disciples in what we call the Last Supper. But he gave us this meal to do this in remembrance of him until he comes again. One day he's going to serve communion again. It's going to be the marriage supper. And we're going to be there and Jesus Christ will be serving. But for right now, he's given us this beautiful sacrament that we might share with one another. And together... As a body of believers, we're declaring our belief in Jesus Christ and who he is. And so Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, and of course he took the unleavened bread. And uh, it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day period of time. And leaven always represented sin. So to be unleavened meant the removing of sin. And Jews, during the week of unleavened bread, would go through the house with uh, a feather, just getting any breadcrumbs that might have leaven in it out of the corners and everything else. They wanted to remove all leaven. And our desire as believers is to remove the leaven from our lives. I don't think any believer wants to live a life of sin or to make excuses for sin. But one of the things we do understand is that as long as we have breath, it's impossible for any of us to be free from sin. There's only one who ever walked this earth that was free from sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And yet... He encourages us to take sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And so that's why Jesus, when he was sitting with his disciples, he took the unleavened bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And Jesus was willing to lay down his life and understand this for no other reason than love. The only reason he laid down his life was because he knew you personally and when he laid down his life he knew you from the from before the foundations of the world were laid the Lamb's book of life was there jesus knew you personally when he died on the cross and so that's why this is such a beautiful sacrament and so then he took the bread and he took the cup and he passed it to his disciples and and so we'll do that now we'll have our ushers come forward and we'll Uh, pass out the elements.
There's no sin that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He shed his body and blood. He suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And he gave us this as a remembrance of his expression of love. And so take and eat and drink and be so thankful to your God. Thank you, Lord, for your complete love. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement. Thank you, Lord, for your long-suffering with us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would fill us with an overflowing portion of your Holy Spirit that we might walk in this life as your witnesses everywhere we go. And we pray and ask all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And God bless you, my dear friends.